0: Hello and welcome to the Two View, the cutting edge educational show for PAs and nurse practitioners in emergency medicine and urgent care. Happy New Year as we roll into episode 33 of our podcast. I am Martha Roberts and I am a practicing nurse practitioner in Northern California. I'm here with my faculty partner, Michael Sharma, PA. Hello, Mike.
1: Hello Martha, happy New Year. My name is Mike Sharma. I am a practicing emergency medicine and urgent care PA in the Dallas, Texas area and an adjunct professor of PA studies. I'm sad to say that I was kind of a normie when it came to my New Year's resolutions. I was doing fantastic with the things I wanted to change in my life, and then kind of two weeks goes by and life happened. And like a lot of folks, kind of it's hard after two weeks to keep the resolutions going. I've gotten back on the train, but I bring this up to say that if you've lost your resolve, you broke your resolution, you're not alone. And it's okay to re-resolve to make those changes in your life if you fell off the wagon, Martha. How about you? Any resolutions for the year?
0: Uh yeah, not die. That's on my oh, list.
1: That's, that's a good one. I, yeah, that's actually, usually on my list as well. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, I think I actively need to try to not die this year, honestly, because I have so many things going on. I have a, an ablation surgery coming up for these weird arrhythmias I have. Um, you know, and I really don't believe in these New Year's. Resolutions. I think that it's important to have things to fix and aspire to, but I I really feel like you can change or work on those things anytime you want. But some people need that start date of January 1st, and I don't fault them. I think however you want to do it and whenever you want to do it is fine. I like that. Yeah. So this month, we're going to talk about a few things. We're going to talk about some Jones fractures. We're going to talk a little bit about atrial fibrillation. We're going to throw some stuff in there about walking boots. We're also going to talk a little bit about two procedures that I want you to keep your eye out for. Um, And, you know, there's a couple of other really good tidbits in the podcast today that we want to share with you. And really starting off on this first segment, you know, Mike, I think it's really important that we keep this down to a minute. (laughs)
1: <laughs> first time for everything i suppose right it's our wet read where martha and i get 60 quick seconds or so to talk about thing that something that caught our eye
0: yeah so i was inspired this month to talk a little bit about walking boots or full-sized cashew boots so every time i say cashew it sounds like cashew cashew but i cashew. love cashews
1: oh my gosh no, they're so but good. Like,
0: i'm gonna say i'm gonna say cashew and then i'm gonna say cashew can you which one is cashew and which one is cashew
1: well, you want to put one on your feet, and you want to eat the other one.
0: Exactly. You
1: don't want to confuse cashews <laughs> and cashews. That's That could be sending you to the uh, ER by itself.
0: Truly. Okay, so recently one of our nurse practitioners had an accident and sprained both of her ankles. Luckily, she didn't break her foot or her ankle. I know, it really sucks. But she did have to go to the emergency room to be treated, and she shared that with our group. Because she had double ankle sprains, it was almost impossible for her to walk. She was in quite a bit of pain. The clinician that she saw, a physician, gave her two walking boots without crutches. After applying the walking boots, my NP friend had a lot of difficulty walking, increased pain, uh, swelling, increased uh, inability to stand, (laughs) and she tripped two additional times and she almost got a foosh injury. Yeah, I know. So walking boots are really actually very dangerous items. I wouldn't have put that on my list of things that are dangerous (laughs) um, in my not die list, but Honestly, they can really cause some serious issues. It's important when you have an ankle sprain, you rest it, you ice it, compress it, and elevate it. But one of the most important things the literature is showing that the use of the extremity, gentle stretching, even heat application, gentle walk, or engaging the area can actually be helpful for healing. Anti-inflammatories like NSAIDs, they can assist with pain and swelling for a couple of days as well as some combined acetaminophen, putting those two together. So yeah, just just kind of putting it out there that remember these can be really dangerous. And one thing I just kind of wanted to say was that when the area of the ankle is injured, it's it's not the foot, unless of course it is the foot, but the toes need to be exposed. That helps with balance, flexion, and extension of the foot. Patients can develop severe plantar fasciitis, uh, cramping, um, increased pain and swelling and immobility. So again, they make special walking boots with free-range toes, basically. Also, patients can suffer from, of course, DVTs if they use these for a long period of time, cellulitis, skin breakdown, things like that. So I, I urge you not to, one, give a large walking boot or uh, ill-fitted cast shoe in a way um, For a patient that has an ankle issue, especially if it's not broken, it's limiting and it can cause severe issues. The last thing I just wanted to mention is that there are a lot, and when I say a lot, I'm talking class action lawsuits against doctors, nurse practitioners, and PAs, and even some nurses that applied these, saying that I was never told this information, they've caused more damage, and that they can be really dangerous devices. So... Sure, you can still use them for some types of injuries, but think twice about them and certainly uh, review the discharge information uh, with the patient, especially if they're prone to further injury. Two ankle sprains, honestly, a nicely fitted ACE wrap or an air cast would be just fine for this patient.
1: Yeah, Yeah. I I don't often, uh, no, sorry, I I do often get uh, asked from patients, like, can I get a walking boot? And usually it's for an ankle sprain. And I do have the discussion. It's like, well, you know, like, let's talk about that. You know, when you put yourself into a walking boot, you can't pump your ankle back and forth. And so your calves are going to get weak. And what I don't want for you is for your leg to get weak from this ankle sprain. I want like, as uncomfortable as it is, I want you to try and gut it out. Um, through this so you don't develop muscle atrophy and other problems here. Um, But, you know, but if you really think you need this walking boot, I want you to stop using it the second you feel like you can stop using it. So like really emphasizing the short duration, especially for a simple ankle sprain. I get it. Sometimes they hurt really bad. And so like, okay, I suppose I'll put you in it, but I'll tell you and I'll write it down, stop using it immediately. There often is pre-printed discharge instructions on walking boots. And so I'll put that in the patient's information as well about walking boots, just so like it sure does look like Mike talked to you about the walking boot, you know, since he put all this stuff in there. And he he says that he discussed the walking boot precautions in his chart.
0: Yeah. So just food for thought.
1: I think it's or great, yeah. cashew for thought. Cashew for thought. Uh, delightful. Now, um, oh
0: you know, I joke, there are differences between the cast shoe and a walking boot, but there are modified cast shoes that come up along the ankle. So, you know, whatever your department has and whatever you call it, um, not to uh, mince words here.
1: Was that another cashew joke, mincing? <laughs> so, um, quick aside here. I went to Belize for one of my stops in uh, my, my honeymoon back, uh, you know, many moons ago. And in Belize, they will make wine from cashews. Mm-hmm. And it's delicious. No, well, no, no. It's actually really good. Yeah, it's fermented,
0: so, so sure. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Anything. You fermented enough. Anything's good. But yeah, it was actually really good. Well, my wet read segment is about giving someone a Coke but maybe not a smile specifically in the setting of esophageal food bolus impactions these patients with food bolus impactions often describe eating a food and then suddenly being unable to tolerate even their own saliva they're retching they're spitting into an emesis bag they just look terrible one trick that some of us may have been taught is giving a patient some sort of a carbonated beverage right like something you crack open a cold can of something and and down the hatch a recent study published in the bmj out of the netherlands with a multi-center randomized control trial of admittedly only 51 adults but in the trial group patients with esophageal food bolus impaction drank 25 ml cups of cola um over time up to a maximum of 200 ml so just for all of you uh like me that are less metric minded right 25 mL is less than 2 tablespoons of cola, so not a large amount of cola to begin with. Anyways, trial group participants were compared to a control group who, poor guys, just kind of waited around for spontaneous passage. In the end, there was a slight increase of complete passage in the cola group, but it weighs not a significant difference, and there was some increased discomfort in the COLA group. Bottom line, maybe you try the COLA because of low risk of severe adverse events, not no risk, but low risk of severe adverse events, but they'll probably still need the endoscopy.
0: Okay, fine. I think that that's an interesting study. However... Direct visualization is always my go-to, whether it's calling GI to come in and scope or use that flexible endoscopy, because that's the preferred treatment modality for most cases of esophageal food impaction. Uh, You know, endoscopic diagnosis is more than just pulling out that piece of food. It can also check out, you know, the um, the underlying pathology that could be something that there's, you know, a mass or constriction or even cancers, you know, there could be a lot of things going on, especially if this patient has had more than one of these in their lifetime. So I think that sure, you could try the soda, but what makes Coke so special? Is it the caramel color? Is it, um, you know, the bright red can? Why not Fanta? Who cares? I think that you could try any of those, but you do again, risk aspiration with this attempt. It does happen. I've had patients who've needed future bronx because of continual irritation after people force them to swallow a bunch of liquid with this impacted item. You know, the body's natural response is don't swallow anything right now because stuff is stuck. So I don't know. I think just there, if there's a structural thing going on with these patients, taking a more complete look is the right thing to do.
1: Yeah, and to be clear, like, I'm not advocating for this. Like, I'm I, I'm, I'm bringing up that, like, maybe you try the cola, but I would go very low volume. I don't think, like, my personal approach is, well, I'll get into it in a second here, but, like, if we try something carbonated one time and it doesn't work, I'm all done here. Like, I, I don't want to keep on doing it for the, the risks you mentioned as far as the aspiration. Mm-hmm. Well, Martha, I've got some really exciting news. Uh, Diane Birnbaumer, who, as you know, is the co-director for our emergency medicine boot camps, wrote me about our upcoming advanced EM boot camp in July and let me know I'll be co-hosting one of the pre-course workshops, the EKG workshop with Fred Abrahamian. I'm really passionate about EKG instruction. It's one of the things I've been teaching about the longest, both kind of informally and, and as well as at the PA programs where I teach. If you out there struggle with EKGs, number one, you're not alone. But number two, it's time to get off the struggle bus and get on a plane to Las Vegas for Advanced Emergency Medicine Boot Camp. July 9 is our pre-course day for this EKG workup and an imaging workshop. And our main advanced boot camp course will be July tenth through 12th That'll be at the fantastic Planet Hollywood and in- Uh, hotel and casino, and you can get all the details at the Center for Medical Education website at www.ccme.org. That's www.ccme.org.
0: So that's super awesome. A lot of folks are thinking about coming to our advanced boot camp. They're like, do I have to go to the original emergency medicine boot camp first? No, you don't. We'd like you to, but you don't have to. <laughs> so we'll we'll be checking for um, your registration. No, we weren't really doing that. But speaking of the original boot camp, you could totally do the streaming version or get ready before you come. That's available online. Um, if you want, you can come uh, check out all of our courses at ccme.org and find out what works for you. The original bootcamp is offered this year, December 4th through the 7th, and we're still working out the details of the ultrasound and procedures workshops, whether it's going to be before the course or after the course or in the middle of the course, we're kind of throwing around a couple of ideas.
1: And further speaking of the original EM bootcamp, I do share my tricks on esophageal food bolus impactions during my upper abdominal emergencies talk at the bootcamp. And uh, that actually is online for viewing right now. You can get kind of a taste of what it's like to be at the original EM bootcamp and listen to me telling hilarious jokes in person, okay? So get a feel for that. Go to our website, 2 viewfiresidefm We'll link to that on our YouTube channel. But basically, go to our website. That's to number two view.fireside.fm and we'll link you to my chat about upper abdominal emergencies.
0: Tasty. (laughs) You know, I don't really even like that word. I don't even like to say that word. I don't know. It's just like a tasty? I I just just, What's wrong with tasty? I don't know. I'd rather just say this food tastes good. I don't know. (laughs) Okay. Hey, what's the latest evidence say about glucagon by the way?
1: Um, I don't know if there is latest evidence. I think the it's just old evidence and it's bad. Yeah, I, uh, you, know, you
0: know, yeah. there was an article in 2019 that looked at glucagon for the relief of acute esophageal for in bodies and food impactions. It was a systemic review and meta-analysis, so like, oh, this is like what you need to read. This was in uh, Pharmacotherapy, so April
1: 2019. Hmm.
0: You know, so they, wow, well, they break this down quite a bit, um, but glucagon was not associated with a difference in treatment success, but had a higher rate of adverse events for the treatment of esophageal foreign body and food impaction. So something to think about when you look at a study like that.
1: And that's so hard. It's like, I feel like the line you get from your gastroenterologist is usually like, try the glucagon ativan. And it's like, Well, it's easy for you to say, but I pull the trigger on this, you know, and if the patient has a bad outcome, it's on me pulling the trigger and not the gastroenterologist, you know, and so that's that's a really tough one to to swallow, no pun intended.
0: I think people really underestimate the power in which the GI juices in your stomach can have on other things. Like, a couple of thoughts. When you vomit, like the smell of vomit, if it's in your car or your rug or wherever, it never goes away, right? It maybe <laughs> burns a hole. Think about what, like, when you just have like acid reflux, like it it's just it burns so badly. You get that in your nose, you get that in your lungs. Is it ain't good? So I don't know. Like I said, direct visualization is is something I definitely agree with. But anyway, Plus
1: you could you could do a Bohrav syndrome too, like you would mm-hmm. tear your esophagus. You know, if it's a a closed space, so like all oh, there's so many bad reasons. There's so many reasons to not do glucagon and very few reasons to do glucagon. So uh, I'm so curious as when that recommendation will go away, frankly. I wonder if GI mm-hmm. will ever stop recommending glucagon.
0: Anyway, that I was just totally going off script here. But uh, let's move back to the script <laughs> segment two. This is our dry scan where we penetrate a little deeper into two other topics. And Mike, I'm going to let you talk a little bit about AFib guidelines
1: yeah the American College of Cardiology has really been a tear recently when it's uh, coming to providing updated guidelines on a lot of things we care about in emergency medicine We've covered two of their guidelines on chest pain in the podcast and we'll link to those episodes in the show notes again that's to the number two We haven't even gotten to their CHF guidelines. Today though we're going to look at their recent guidelines on atrial fibrillation. These were published in late 2023 while well, all of us were coming off of our turkey hangovers, I think. Uh, <laughs> first off, rhythm recognition. Your hallmarks of this rhythm of atrial fibrillation are no identifiable P waves, irregularly irregular R-R intervals. So that means like just randomly spaced Um, the next R wave comes at a randomly spaced interval. There's no pattern to it. And a narrow complex QRS. There are other rhythms out there that have irregularly irregular R to R intervals. But when you see all those things together, no P waves, irregularly irregular R R intervals, and a narrow QRS complex together, it's almost certainly atrial fibrillation.
0: Yeah, so there's some interesting talk about classifying atrial fibrillation, modifying risk factors, and cardiology procedures, and that's all there for you to read. But perhaps the most pertinent stuff is what we do in the ED when someone comes in in atrial fibrillation. Fibrillation. What is it? What do we do? Well, when it comes to atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response, AFib, with tachycardia, it's important that we slow the rate down to 100 or less, Beta blockers are certain calcium channel blockers like verapamil, diltiazem, and still considering first-line treatment for this strat- treatment strategy of ray control, eh, digoxin as the second-line option. Consider IV magnesium, top 10 medication of all time, <laughs> as an adjunct in addition to any of these previously mentioned medications.
1: So the next consideration after you've thought about ray control is whether you should attempt Rhythm control, breaking them out of AFib and putting them back in a sinus rhythm. Um, the guidelines are really aggressively pushing that um, everybody who's in AFib should be considered at some point for rhythm control because of much increased quality of life if people are, are in sinus more than they are in AFib. But let's talk about like, you know, nuts and bolts here. The previous textbook answers about cardioversion are this number one, a hemodynamically unstable patient in AFib should be cardioverted. And an electrical cardioversion is the fastest way to do that. That's still recommended. So cardiovert electrically if hemodynamically unstable. So an unstable patient is somebody who is hypotensive, who is altered. These patients are about to die on you. And so you need to take immediate aggressive action. And electrical cardioversion is one of those things. If the patient is in rapid ventricular response and you've tried everything to control the rate. You gave them and you gave them beta blockers, you gave them DIG, maybe you, you threw the magnesium there as well and nothing's working. This is another time to consider cardioversion. However, these new guidelines bring up the nice point that the risk of thromboembolism Um, the risk of a patient developing a clot in their atrium and then shooting that clot out into a downstream organ when you convert it back into sinus, that risk of thrombolism needs to be more of an individual basis. The textbooks, you know, used to say, and still kind of do say, because textbooks kind of lag behind, you know, active practice, right? If you've been an AFib less than 48 hours, then you can go ahead and cardiovert somebody without putting them on anticoagulation first. However, the guidelines remind us that patients can have. Asymptomatic AFib. Like you, you do this long enough, you're gonna find someone who's in AFib, and they had no idea they were in AFib. <clears throat> so they could be they could have been an AFib for longer than the 48 hours that they felt like they were at AFib. And there are some studies referenced in the guidelines that describe patients who had symptomatic AFib for less than 48 hours but their CHADS-VASc scores were high, right? That's kind of like the most up-to-date scoring system to identify people who are at risk for blood clots, the CHADS-VASc score, and all you need is two, okay? All you need is two or more points on that, and that puts you at significant enough risk of blood clots. And so these patients had a CHADS-VASc score of two or greater, And they had only felt like they were in AFib for less than 48 hours. So they were cardioverted, but they ended up having thromboembolism after the cardioversion. Mm -hmm. So don't staple yourself to the 48-hour mark. Consider the Vindu patient in front of you. And maybe you want to consider some anticoagulation, even if they've only been in um, symptomatic AFib for less than 48 hours. Maybe they've been asymptomatic for longer.
0: Yeah. Well we'll post all of that information and how to read it in our liner notes, and you can take a look when you have five hours.
1: <laughs> there fairly. is
0: a short. no, 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 so there is
1: what what I think ACC rules does really good about, they do a big guideline. yeah, and then they have this like a smaller guideline, like the executive summary. So there is an executive summary of this. We'll put both of those on there. and the executive summary does uh, mention about early rhythm control. Um, It does not seem, oh, here we go, consideration of stroke risk modifiers. So, like, yep. it does kind of, um, mm-hmm. so, you know, point to this a little bit in the um, guideline at a glance, they call it. But if you look a little bit deeper, it goes into more detail on these studies that show these uh, these patients who had bad outcomes.
0: Well, quite frankly, I think that reading these longer page uh, reports that they put out are really good. And and I say this because cardiology for me was so last year. Um <laughs> You know, when I was reading the guidelines about NSVT and these ventricular rhythms, I read the whole thing mostly because I had self-interest, but also <laughs> it really broke down everything in this really wonderful language that stuck. I remember it now forever. So I guess it just depends on how much you care about atrial fibrillation and anything else where you read, you know, the full page event. But sure, you can get the, uh, what do you call that? Uh Cliff notes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, let's see if we can do a few cliff notes on Jones fractures. I mean, you're probably like, foot fractures, who cares? But I just think these are just fascinating, interesting injuries, and you can get really good at finding them, and they can be missed. Okay. So we're briefly going to talk about the Jones fractures, specifically this fracture of the foot, as you know, is a fracture of the proximal metaphyseal junction of the 5th metatarsal bone that involves the 4th to 5th metatarsal articulation, and it's a transverse fracture at the base of that 5th metatarsal, 1.5 to 3 centimeters distal to the proximal tuberosity at the metaphyseal junction without distal extension. And if you want to get more orthotechnical here, we put some links for you to review the anatomy.
1: You know, typically we know the mechanism for these fractures. Uh, A common one is an adduction to the forefoot with ankle and plantar flexion. So, like, do this now. Like, unless you're driving, in which case, don't mess with your gas pedal foot, right? But like, you flex your yeah, exactly. A significant increase in car crashes for two (laughs) of you listeners this month. That's kind of weird. So yeah, so you you flex your your ankle down and then you adduct the foot. So you kind of like, I guess, turn it inwards okay all right very good so there you go that's kind of your typical mechanism
0: yeah and typically there's two mechanisms that are going on because i mean it's a bone um on obviously the outside of your foot and and rolling your ankle sometimes can get it we'll talk about that in a second but typically patients will tell you that they tripped and fell and they hurt their foot in in their ankle they'll tell you like their whole lower extremity basically they felt a crack and sudden pain Um, and remember the other bones in the foot they aren't you know so easy to break this fifth metatarsal is a lot easier to break because if you look at the pictures of the foot bones anatomically it's just there to break yeah. so um these can be well jones fractures can happen in anybody but they often can affect athletes that when they're uh, athletes when they're frequently twisting or changing directions jumping or running um, but they're also common in people who have jobs that require them to do a lot of standing, walking, and older adults with osteoporosis. So, one side note here, I wanted to make sure not to confuse the Jones fracture with a dancer's fracture. And we're gonna kind of break this down. Remember, a dancer's fracture is an avulsion type fracture where the tendon pulls off some of the bone from the metatarsal near the joint um, with the with the midfoot. But these these fractures heal well, okay. Jones fractures, on the other hand, involve the shaft and the base there of the fifth metatarsal um, and has a propensity not to heal.
1: Yeah, this is kind of like like the scaphoid fracture of the foot, you know, Mm -hmm. because of where it is. Uh, You know, there's different kinds of fractures in this neighborhood. And um, is it important you tell the patient what kind of fracture they have, like, good news, it's a dancer's fracture. I don't think you have to get lost in the weeds there. In the end, I tell patients, hey, you broke your foot. And if it's a more concerning injury like the Jones fracture, I'll just say, hey, you broke your foot. And it's kind of a bad break. And I'll emphasize how important it is to follow up with the right people.
0: Yeah, which is what we want to talk about on the show now. So we talked a little bit about these assistive devices that we can put on the lower extremity and how much danger they can cause. Um, but really. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the emergency department workup for, quote, I tripped and fell and hurt my foot or ankle. So you might have a suspicion of a Jones fracture or other injury, but obtaining, of course, a plain film radiograph will show a Jones fracture most of the time. So your eyes are going to look right down at that base of the fifth metatarsal. So you should have a system in which you look at every time you look at a radiograph of a part of the body, right? So when I look at the foot, I don't immediately go to the the base of the fifth metatarsal. I first globally look at the foot. Now your eye is always gonna go to the first fracture and miss the second fracture. Um, So you always have to make sure that you have a systematic approach because if you get focused on that one fracture, you're gonna miss other things that could be going on. So don't forget to just use the same approach every time, even though you see an immediate abnormality. So again, you're looking at the base of the fifth metatarsal as part of your review of the X-ray and then that fracture is going to occur there at the base where we talked about, and you're going to see sharp fracture margins, um, and and that's really indicating an acute fracture. But you could discover an old fracture, which looks a lot different, but that's because these are prone to nonunion. So a couple things that I was taught again when reviewing imaging of the lower extremity, if you have traumas, it's very important to x-ray both the distal proximal portions of of the known fracture. So if the person has a known ankle fracture, you found it, but you didn't get a foot radiograph, you absolutely have to add on the foot and the tib-fib. Oftentimes, there are additional fractures. The patient is distracted by the ankle fracture and not necessarily reporting foot pain. And we've talked about this on previous podcasts. The body is not good. We think the body, I mean, the body's great, at so many things, but it's not good at understanding pain or localizing pain at times. We know this with abdominal pain, right? People with gallbladder issues have referred shoulder pain. People with, you know, um, back pain, you know, sometimes it can be related to a cardiac issue. So the body just is not great. And this is because of the way the nerves innovate the muscles, the tendons, the ligaments, you know, because you have certain ligaments like the peroneus brevis, it extends outside to the back of the ankle and goes all the way down to the base of the fifth metatarsal, which can be injured during these ankle sprains. But so it's like, well, my ankle hurts. I'm not really sure if my foot hurts. But again, if that is an issue, it can be distracting for the patient. So once you have done your imaging, you've confirmed you have a Jones fracture, the appropriate treatment and prognosis should be discussed with the patient. I feel that we do a pretty poor job of explaining these things to patients in the emergency department. As we know, 50% of patients can't explain why they went to the ER and what their diagnosis was, (laughs) mostly because, um, you know, I think we're overworked, we're busy, we often do a lot of repeating, and we forget that these patients know little to nothing about their injury, and we know more. You
1: know, it's funny... um, this imaging thing is just so practice dependent, right? Like my current practice, if you blow out your ankle, yeah, you're getting tib fib, ankle and foot x-rays. Boom. Everyone get three x-rays right at my a previous ED. If I were aggressively ordering foot and ankle every single time, uh, I'd probably have someone come talk to me like, uh, Hey man, like, uh, what are you doing? You know? Yeah. Cause like, is it the foot or is it the ankle? And so maybe you work at one of those practices where you get that like, uh, hey, what are you doing when you order a couple different x-rays? And so you know what? Um, you have to do you and you have to take care of the patient in front of you. And so you can just be pretty, uh, you know, if you really, you know, if you're in the practice of getting multiple x-rays, and you're getting pushback, just, you know, can be pretty straightforward. Just be like, hey, he had some point tenderness. I couldn't rule it out physically. And that's like, that's all you got to say, like, and and whether they actually had point tenderness or not, like, I don't know, it's kind of up to you, honestly. But if you just say like, he had point tenderness, like I got wanted to take a look, then then there you go. You know, like, it's hard for anyone to really fault you when it came when it comes to that, I don't think they'll push much farther uh, back on you if you describe, you know, physical exam suggestive of a fracture with that point tenderness.
0: Yeah, well, Mike, you know, one thing I also wanted to mention is that we really have been getting to suck at physical exam. I mean, we've been talking about this since day one of the podcast. I mean, I don't know what the heck is going on, but, like, people aren't even using stethoscopes. I mean, give me a break. I mean, let alone tuning forks. I'm not saying. It's just it it's getting really bad and really, it's not even lazy. I understand. Like you don't, sometimes you just don't want to do your job. Maybe it's because I don't work 17 clinical shifts a month that I can walk in to the ER and be like, who can I listen to next? You know, it's like, it's like, uh, you know, patients have these diagnoses. Someone's like, oh, the patient in room five has an appendicitis. I'm like, oh, let me go ultrasound it. Cause I haven't looked at one in a while and I want to make sure I keep my skills up. I don't know. Maybe I'm just different and really lame or really nerdy. I don't know. You decide, but man.
1: It's tricky, tr- right? I mean, I think that, you know, we were taught all these things in school about physical exam and how important the physical exam is. And and so you come out of school thinking that, but then if you rely on your physical exam too much, you end up missing things like, oh, like I pushed <laughs> on that 65 year old's belly and it wasn't that bad. And they had a rip roaring appendicitis or a perforated diverticulum or something like that. So I think it's you know you know and and, and you know listening to lungs. I go back and forth on listening to the lungs, frankly, because like during COVID, I very rarely got up in the splash zone and listened to someone's lungs. Like the pulse ox told me what I needed to know during COVID, and also just looking at the patient, seeing were they like dyspneic. You know, is there increased work of breathing? I really listened more to listen for like wheezing. You know, and if they had wheezing, I'd be like, all right, there's some kind of bronchospasm. So it's tough. I, I, I don't want to fault. like Everyone's at their own practice, right? And I think you end up having, you end up becoming comfortable with, with your level of physical exam. Uh, I, I think you, you have to decide for yourself uh, and the patient in front of you, how much physical exam can I rely on in this patient in this situation?
0: Okay, that's fine. You can put it you can put the whole picture together. I like that even better. But going back to Jones fractures, I didn't want to get us too side railed here. Yeah, fair. We talked about, you know, these non union rates and poor healing. I mean it could be up to fifty percent of the cases. And a yeah. lot of people walk around with these huh, unfortunately for a while. Seriously. Um, you know, athletes will even want to get back on the field and push through it. Um, people with diabetes and neuropathies and Lower foot issues, you know, they may not really understand the body. I mean, doesn't feel the pain the way it should or understand how severe the injuries can be, uh, but really displacement of the fracture can increase the more we weight bear. So we need to immobilize and no weight bearing. That's the initial therapy for six to eight weeks. Mm. So there's that. And then do patients get surgery, pins, screws, plates, other intervention interventions? Sure but that's all relative to the extent of their injury and also what insurance they have. So mm-hmm. keep that in mind. I was gonna talk a little bit about insurance, but I've since decided to not. So you can talk about operative management.
1: Fine. Operative management is indicated in patients that are you know, high-level athletes or in uh, non-operatively managed fractures where delayed union has occurred. So either high-level athletes or people where we try a trial of non-op management and there's still this kind of delayed union going on. There's usually a screw or some sort of other open reduction and internal fixation um, as kind of that, that salvage. Um, so usually it's kind of screw first then you kind of progress on to the, the orif if the screw isn't doing it. Sometimes there's even bone grafts that can happen when there's a big displacement of the fracture fragments.
0: Yeah. So DPMs, our foot doctors, often use the knee scooter. I mean, I talk to them. I'm like, what are we doing these days? They're like, we love the knee scooters. They're awesome. Sometimes they're using a boot, but they really prefer casts in this case with crutches because it's personalized. It's fitted to them. Patients can take off the boot Um, and it can displace the fracture further. So what's really important is that this fracture stays stable and without weight-bearing for six to eight weeks. So keep that in your mind. NSAIDs can be okay in the first couple of days, Um, and the foot doctor is saying, okay, sure, like NSAIDs, you know, some people question whether or not this can uh, delay bone healing, but two to three days of NSAIDs can help with pain. And honestly, what's up with, like, just two oxycodone? I mean... They're not walking around anyway. This is one of those times, you know, Mike, we don't always agree, but uh, hell, I'm giving them a couple of oxy, you know?
1: No, I, I, um, for me, it's like either a Tylenol and Motrin for something, or I go all the way to like at least a Norco, Um, like T3 and Tramadol, it's like, thanks, but no thanks. You know, I'll just take a little extra ibuprofen. Like if I really want good pain control, I'm going to go something opioid uh, higher than T3 and Tramadol.
0: Yeah, um I'm just saying I I don't hate opioids. I just hate I don't either. The people who have yeah. made this so difficult for everybody in every way shape and form. Um I, 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 we won't go there today. It's fine.
1: <laughs> you know, um we we have some great videos in our show notes uh, at the twoview.fireside.fm that go into even more detail with Jones fractures and so please go on to twoview.fireside.fm
0: Yeah. And I put a video there from the Michigan foot doctors. When in doubt, go to the experts and foot doctors would know the best here. Orthopedics will know the best here. They put all the pieces together. Eight minutes. Great video. Why do I like this video? Because it has language that is tailored for both the clinician and the patient. So I actually learn a lot of my talking techniques from videos like this from specialists where they're like, This is your diagnosis and it's when a bone breaks in the middle, you know, or on the side or so I think, I don't know. I just like refreshing and seeing how other people present information to patients. Really well done. Thank you, Michigan foot doctors. Lastly, got to throw some literature in there. Uh, Evidence on Jones fractures, walking boots specifically, according to a retrospective review of just 55 patients. So not a huge study. In the journal, The Foot, I mean, if we're going to go to a journal, March 22, 2022, sorry, got messed up with my twos. This article was called, uh, conservative management of Jones fractures with immediate weight bearing in walking boot demonstrates healing walking boot. Um, excuse me. (laughs) I got messed up with the title conservative management of jones fractures with immediate weight bearing and walking boots so this is showing that the outcomes were similar to cast so you can cast them Mm. you can walking boot them personally i think cast just like as soon as the patient gets a cast on it's just it's just so personalized it's like (laughs) it's like monogram you know anyway finally the academy uh, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, AAOS, has given a great 2022 review of the treatment of these fractures. Again, pretty interesting, extremely well written, not that long. Urge you to take a look.
1: I think if, you, if your ER group works very closely with a podiatry or ortho group that handles this, I think I would want to know what they want. Because the last thing I want to do is like, well, this study suggested, you know, walking boots were okay. And then it goes to that group and they go, what are you doing? You put them in a walking boot. It's a Jones fracture. So, so get to know your colleagues and hopefully they get to know you and you kind of um, play to their, their uh, preferences when it makes sense to do so.
0: You know, Mike. No one has ever criticized me. I cannot remember a time anyone has ever criticized me for casting something instead of splinting it. Honestly, um, I know that sounds crazy. And over. And you say
1: we cast. You're talking about a circumferential cast.
0: Okay. Uh, yes. Okay. Unless, of course, circumferential isn't isn't the thing you want to use. Okay. okay so fair. don't. I'm not saying like there are some injuries where circumferential casting would not be appropriate or compartment syndrome if you have a known diagnosis. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, there's yeah. that, but. If I'm debating about doing, if I'm worried about a fracture and I'm either going to put them in a walking boot or a cast, I put them in a cast if I'm trying to make the decision. Like I do plaster or I do fiberglass. And to mm-hmm. me, that's always a better fit, literally, for the patient.
1: Yeah. Uh, and we've mentioned, you know, about the, the concerns for the walking boot too. Right. People walk in walking boots. If the whole point is to get you off your foot, it's like, know, like <laughs> the name says walking boot. Like right? I I think I'm supposed to walk in this, you know, but um, yeah, that's, I, I don't want to get somebody uh, in the wrong uh, frame of mind here yeah well lastly it's our oral contrast segment where we get into all the nooks and crannies of a topic
0: well you know uh wouldn't be a show if i didn't talk about a foreign body in the penis and <laughs> keloids so these are the two procedures that i want to talk about this final segment we're going to talk about these two procedures briefly but they're for the seasoned professional, the astute clinician who is like, you know what? I really want to add these things to my portfolio um, because I know that I can. And I know that I could do this. And I know I could fix this. And I- gosh darn it, I'm good looking when I do it. Okay? <laughs> no. So, Was that a concern? No. I'm just joking. Just, just, <laughs> we're in the last segment. I'm getting tired. So Fine. first and foremost, I want to suggest that you consider doing some of these because I've encountered both of them recently, and they're really not exceedingly difficult procedures. Are they emergency department procedures? You know how much I hate that term uh, or phrase, uh, it's not my job. Um, So I don't know. I want to focus a couple um, of minutes on these procedures because I think that they're going to save patients thousands of dollars and there's no reason why you can't do them, period. Um, Sometimes I just make executive decisions, and certainly under my scope, you have to be uh, understanding of the risk-benefit. You have to feel confident to perform them. You have to have experience, um, and certainly, you know, unless your hospital or care area doesn't allow it, like, okay, fine, don't do it. But if it's not a lengthy procedure that's going to take up emergent time needed for another patient who's critically ill— then sure, uh, let's say it's two in the morning and you have a patient come in with one of these problems, I would consider helping them out. And then the other thing you can do is know where to refer patients if you can, if you're busy, if you're like, oh man, this is totally something I could do, but it could be something I can refer to our wound clinic that's open during this time, like peronychias or abscesses, like those can all wait like an hour or two. They can go next door if the place is open or suture removal, simple cast reapplication, things like that. Just know where to send your patients when you do have a busy day, just side note.
1: Yeah, that's so hard. And, you know, if you as a practitioner have just moved to a new city or even a new part of town, take a second and kind of ask around because the senior practitioners at your practice They kind of learn these things. They learn like, oh, yeah, you can go to so-and-so for behavioral health care, you know, on the county's dime. You can go here. There's a federally qualified health clinic over here. So like um, either individual clinicians, uh, their senior may know these things, or your practice may have some sort of a list that is already pre-kind of approved by your ED group or by your hospital to say, hey, here are the places patients can go for X, Y, Z.
0: You know, we talk about this in the very last lecture at the boot camp, where I, uh, I give some tips and pearls. Go find out who's get a name, get a name of somebody. Like everybody knows that I'm not going to say his name, but Doctor Smith will just give him a random name from ophthalmology. Okay. We'll see any patient anytime and come in on his day off. So, like, if I know if a patient is really desperate and needs to be seen, I'll call Doctor Smith because he's the bomb. Um, okay. Do people still say that? That was like the 1900s that we were saying, the bomb.
1: Uh, He has riz. How about that? Is that something you can say? (laughs) That's something else, isn't it? Okay, I I shouldn't.
0: (laughs) Okay, moving forward. So let's talk about this procedure where there's a foreign body in the penis. The first procedure here uh, was done with um, one of my friends and co-editors for the videos for Robertson Hedges for the 8th edition, which we're working on right now. That's Dr. Jessica Mason. She's done a lot of work with Mm. MRAP um, but she also is just a wonderful educator and she performed this procedure on an incarcerated patient that came from jail, jail. It was some court, like it was a transfer, but it was supposed to go to another, you know, cause jails have hospital too. Like they have ability to treat these patients, but whatever the confusion was, this patient came to her, had a foreign body superficially placed in the shaft of the penis.
1: That's funny. I was just talking about Jess yesterday and wishing her well. Um, it's so funny, right? Like I, I had a patient come in from from jail the other day for for suture removal, and I was like, "Do they not have scissors at the jail?" <laughs> like, all right, whatever. But um, yeah, I, I, for this um, foreign body in penis, I, I suppose a higher level of care perhaps is indicated. Yeah, uh, this is you know not an unusual practice in prisons. Uh, some sort of a sharp object, they insert it into the penis, um, like. Some people will do like urethral sounding where they actually put it into the urethra of the penis, but other people will put things underneath the skin superficially of the penis, uh, which is different than in the, the urethra. We're talking here today about the superficial um, subcutaneous objects, correct?
0: Yes, that's correct. Okay. Yeah. So it can be a bead, a razor, a piece of metal, whatever. Okay. But I po- uh,
1: shallowly under the surface. Okay. Yes. I got it now. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So I posted a specific video. It's very good. Um... That we just edited this video. It's going in the book. And they anesthetize um, the area. And they take it out. But And the patient was discharged back to jail. Um, but what I really think is kind of cool is the particular block that they did for this patient. And that's what I want to highlight. So not hmm. necessarily removing the foreign body from the penis, which very rarely will be presented to you. But doing a local block on the dorsal aspect of the penis at the base there can be very helpful for many other issues regarding male patients and penis problems.
1: Right. uh, Jess takes a look at this block, the penile dorsal nerve block. I feel like that's the same block we would use when we were doing, um, uh, oh my gosh, we're doing circumcisions in babies we do this kind of penile dorsal nerve block when i was doing my peds rotation uh, back in the day but uh, if you can think about it right look you're looking at the lower abdomen you've got the penis at the base of the penis at 10 and 2 right so if 12 o'clock is like the middle of the top of the penis 10 is to one direction and two is to the, the other direction kind of like towards the top of the penis that's where the dorsal penile nerves are located
0: yeah so that's right, Mike. If you've seen a penis before, um, you can visualize this. As I mentioned, this is a good block to get to be familiar with, know your landmarks. It can be used for paraphimosis, significant trauma to the penis, severe infection to the penis, other procedures that need to be completed on the penis. So um, the dorsal nerve is primarily uh, somatosensory, but it does have a small motor component, just, just so you know. But um, it it really it stems from the... Um, what nerve does it uh, stem from? The uh, pudendal nerve? Yes, is that, yes, yes. Uh, okay, that is, very good. That is correct. Nailed it. And it is, uh, that's the chief uh, nerve of the perineum and the external genitalia. That's what I wanted to say. Okay.
1: Well, uh, while it's some- What's important to know is that there is this bundle, right, that runs along the dorsal aspect of the penis in this groove between the two hemispheres of the corpus cavernosa. This groove includes the, there's the dorsal nerve of the penis, there's the dorsal penile vein, the dorsal penile artery, and so those are all along the 12 o'clock position. Um, they're beneath the deep fascia called Bucks fascia. You want to stay far away from these vascular structures when doing this nerve block. That's why you're going to 10 and 2 because these vascular structures are at the 12 o'clock position.
0: Right. And in the video, we actually um, have had urology consult and uh, show you exactly these landmarks. We do that a lot, actually, for these new videos that we've had for Robertson Hedges clinical procedures in emergency medicine. We've had the experts come in and do the procedure So, and, and oftentimes it's the ER person with that um, specialist together. And so we know that we're doing it and uh, showing education that is, you know, from the specialist too. So that just reminds me to, to remind you all that if you have a copy of Robertson Hedges, you can, if it's the seventh edition it's chapter 55 urologic procedures. So we have some really awesome videos. We have images and shows you exactly how to do this. I also made the video, um, this new video that we'll post in the liner notes. So let's go back to talking about this foreign body. They did the dorsal nerve block. Then the patient received a small amount of local anesthesia around where the foreign body was. And then a small incision was made just above the item. And then it was removed with a hemostat and disposed of. But a few dissolvable sutures were placed. It was a small incision. And The patient experienced very little pain. You can see in the video, tolerated very, very well. What's important here, don't put your fingers in the hole because they're sharp. And that's how they got in there in the first place. So don't put your finger in the hole.
1: Yeah, good rule for life there. Don't put your finger in the hole. Um, And I I know you're going to suggest ultrasounds a way too you can kind of identify and make sure you understand exactly what's going on here.
0: Yeah. Before and after. Why not? Okay. So again, these aren't common practices that you do in the emergency department, but it took less time than an abscess incision and drainage. I mean, I timed it. It was pretty crazy. Um, the next one I want to talk about, uh, if you feel comfortable removing something from the penis like that, I'd say you should feel comfortable with a keloid. However, however, I would say that some people aren't going to feel comfortable doing this because keloids can return. I understand.
1: If you're playing the two-view drinking game and you're taking a drink every time we've said penis, you are hammered right now. (laughs) Um, But uh, keloids, let's talk about keloids, all right? Keloids are the fibroproliferative scars, these kind of thickened scars that really aggressively grow um, when there is a trauma. And, you know, there's hypertrophic scars, where the the fibrotic tissue is just along the scar line. That's one thing. That's not keloids. Keloids, they kind of grow and expand well beyond the borders of the original injury, and they don't just kind of go away. Even hypertrophic scars, your body kind of resorbs these on their own, but these keloids, they they kind of grow and spread and stay. Um, They can, you know, kind of like lessen a bit, flatten a bit, but again, they're pretty persistent. These can happen pretty quickly, uh, relatively speaking within a year of the injury and like the hard part is it's like okay I got this keloid that happened when I cut this person or this person got a cut so I cut the keloid out and then they're gonna keloid again so like what the heck you know um, this is a really tricky situation and this always, can happen what
0: yeah. well I'm saying it's just not always true and I've had multiple hmm. keloids and I'll, I'll tell you about mine if we have time but for small keloid removal you're pretty much doing the exact same thing. An outpatient surgical center would do a wound care clinic. Um, and you probably have pretty awesome, excellent skills. So if you know how to sew, drain an abscess, take care of difficult hand, foot, and other wounds, remove foreign bodies from penises, burns, repair, complex facial lax, other issues, and you're sewing, popping, cutting, exposing. You've been doing all that for 20 years. I think you can do a keloid. I really do. Sure. Okay, but okay, fair.
1: How many of our listeners have been doing that for the past 20 years?
0: I don't know. Maybe they can write us and tell us. Fair. Okay. So I have a great video of the late, great Jim Roberts actually removing a keloid from a patient's hand. We're going to put that on our liner notes as well. And I can tell you that that single patient case study, I know it's just one, followed up with that patient one week later, one year later, five years later, did not have a reformation of his keloid. So- That's awesome. Um, I do want to mention why uh, a couple of things about keloids. People can often get them after a tattoo. I specifically have found that red ink can, uh, can cause this reaction. That's, and I've read a little bit about it in like tattoo news Uh, because I got a few tattoos. I'm not going to lie. So that's an interesting one, but I guess I forgot to mention like why we even care. Like these keloids can get bigger and cause really significant pain. So that's, why I remove them? If they look actively infected or you're concerned about, you know, multiple foreign bodies in the skin or something like, don't mess with it. I understand that. Um, but basically, you know, in this video, um, I, the patient had the laceration to their hand. It healed over it formed the keloid. You can see the demonstration, the local infiltration. And then what was important here is an elliptical incision that expands farther than the keloid. So basically Hmm. you can see in the video that it, you didn't just cut right along the border, you made it an elliptical incision. And I really want to stress that so that you can get that whole thing out. And as much as I've worked with plastic surgery over the years, you know, they have come down and done this quickly in the department. They're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, we can just take that quickly out. Are there ones that are a little more concerning, deep or aggressive? Absolutely. I'm not saying remove every keloid that walks in the door. You may not even have time to do that this, you know, this day and age, but this isn't for the new graduate. If you don't feel comfortable with basic procedures, uh, and if your regulations or your licensed, you know, don't let you do that. That's fine. But, um, yeah. What do you think, well,
1: Mike. We could get like really into the weeds here about I think there are certain schools that don't prepare their graduates for even basic procedures and they're having to spend a lot of money on their own dime to even go to a suturing course, to go to a – imaging interpretation course. Like it's that's kind of why we offer that at at the boot camp because we know there are certain grads that need this experience before they they go into mm-hmm. to full time practice in the ER. Um, just something that I thought was interesting as far as tattoos and reactions, mm-hmm. sarcoidosis. So mm-hmm. a patient with sarcoidosis, that can be a difficult diagnosis to nail. But if they got a tattoo and there's this kind of like raised reaction in the tattoo, that's interesting for sarcoidosis and should be a consideration.
0: You know, it's funny you say that because when I was hospitalized last year, they said, oh, you have a lot of tattoos. And I still have a teeny tiny bit of a keloid scar. Um, but I had it removed and then I retattooed the area and it <laughs> didn't really come back. It was just, a... but the point is, is they're like, Do you have a lot of keloids? Like, when you get tattoos, what happens with your skin? And they asked me all of that. So, um, fun fact. All right. Neat. Okay. So- Well,
1: uh, you know, we've got the dorsal penile nerve block. We've got great videos on our website and- uh, there's, you know, it's a lot of things that you as the, as you grow in seniority and comfort with your tools and your knowledge of anatomy, you can do a lot of p- things to help patients in need who, you know, like you might just say like, ah, oh, well, uh, go to a family doctor and handle this. It's not as easy as it sounds as we figured out today.
0: Yeah. So again, I just want to remind our audi- audience that I think that we do way more invasive procedures as ER clinicians from nurse to nurse practitioner, to PA, to doctors. We've done a lot of complicated things um, and very complicated procedures in our careers. I mean, I think Foley catheters are traumatic and dangerous for patients at times, depending on what their anatomy or diagnosis is. Certainly an aggressive enema can be dangerous, right? Central lines, A lines, uh, intubations, reductions, dental work that we do basically in the ER, lumbar punctures, the list goes on and on. Big needles and tubes in small spaces. So I think if our people have a few keloids and penile foreign bodies now and again, uh, they, can, they can tackle it. So again, links to the articles and videos are in our liner notes. We did a big keloid segment in episode 79 of the procedural pause for emergency medicine news back in 2018. And we posted also some novel approaches to keloid treatment in our notes as well. So for example, I had a bunch of keloids on my neck. And I wanted to, you know, obviously that's not something I'd go to the ER for, but I did some local steroid injections and that seemed to help flatten um, my scar and that didn't need to be further revised. So that's the end of our show today. It's time for our quick 2 view trivia question. This month, if you get the question correct, you're going to get 20% off a course of your choice. And here's our question.
1: I, I, that's good, right? Two view and 20, like all the twos go together. I like that. That's cleaner. Well, okay, so here's this question, and you got to give both parts of the answer to get this right. Uh, what is the full name of the physician who first described the Jones fracture, and what country? Did he reside in? Uh, email us your two-part answer in addition to anyone you want to give a shout-out to as well as any sort of feedback or comments about this episode. Uh, that's at 2 at gmail.com. That's the number 2 viewcast at gmail.com.
0: More information, as we mentioned, for our online uh, other courses, original and advanced emergency medicine boot camps, All that great stuff is available at www.ccme.org. Our course dates this year, Planet Hollywood will host both our EKG and imaging boot camps July 9th, 2024, and our main advanced boot camp starting Wednesday, July 10th and ending on the 12th.
1: We are also bringing back Mastering Pediatric Emergencies. We're running that back for a second year in a row. That'll be in September 2024. And then Caesar's Palace will host our original emergency medicine boot camp. That's Wednesday, December 4th through Saturday, December second. Uh, sorry, 7th. Um, and the ultrasound procedures courses, TBD. So stay tuned.
0: <laughs> TBD. Thanks for
1: listening. Oh, yeah, TBD. All right. Uh, yeah. BFG, okay. OMG, LOL. Uh, thank you for listening and attending this episode of The Two View. You can subscribe and rate us on Apple iTunes Podcast, Fireside, and Spotify. Um, no more Google Podcasts, RIP, pouring one out for Google Podcasts, it's going away in April. Um, I got to figure something out there. If you like YouTube, And want to see the video blog instead, you want to see Martha's dog sleeping on uh, her carpet behind her, you can go to our website, search for Center for Medical Education on YouTube and you can catch the video version. And don't forget our website where you can go next level on any of our topics from any of our episodes, including all the papers, sites, Videos, uh, foreign bodies and penises that we refer to. That's twoview.fireside.fm. Our audio and video engineers are Ricky Bucata and Dave Pett. Show notes are by Meg Dipple.
0: Thank you again for tuning in, friends and EM. Share this podcast with a friend. Share your thoughts via email. And thanks for sharing your time with us today at the Twoview. Have a good day and a great shift. Bye. Bye.